Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. This week, our guest is Brett Michael Dykes. He is the editor-in-chief of Uproxx and a contributing writer for the New York Times. Brett has also worked and written for Gawker Media, Yahoo News and Yahoo Sports, Esquire, Complex, and a number of other publications. He also wrote the wildly popular blog, Cajun Boy in the City. Welcome to the SLR Podcast, Brett. Hey, Don. I think you're the first person I've ever encountered that pronounces it Yahoo. I've always... Um, it's always been Yahoo to me. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Interesting that's, pronunciation. That's that's the way I like to pronounce it. I'm special that way, Brett. Uh, now, you're known as the Cajun Boy on Twitter, and it was your title as you achieved early success. And you're also a native of New Orleans. So we must begin with the most important question of all, and that is, what is your favorite New Orleans restaurant? Well, um, well, first I'll answer, I'll answer that. Uh, probably right, it's it sort of, it's sort of, uh, fluctuates right now. My favorite restaurant in New Orleans is probably Pesh. Um, it's one of uh, Donald Link's restaurants. Donald Link is a is a uh, you know renowned local chef here. He mm-hmm. um, his first restaurant was a restaurant called Herb Saint. Um, he later opened a restaurant called Cochon and then Cochon Butcher. And Pesh, he opened up. I want to say it was 2014, 2015. Um, won the James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant of the Year in the year that it debuted. And it's sort of a fusion of traditional Cajun food and South American food. If I remember the story correctly, Link had went down and traveled through South America and was really intrigued by the way people cooked fish down there. And he came back and wanted to do something with that. And um, the, the blend of the two... Uh, just work really, really well. And it's got a great bar. I, I love restaurants that you can sit at the bar and eat. I think yes. um, as I've gotten older, um, and I think just from traveling a lot also, like a lot of the times I'm, I'm uh, you know, when I travel, I'm solo. And rather than sitting at a table for one, which, uh, you know, can just be a little weird sometimes. And you can almost feel people looking at you like, oh, who's this Who's this sad person over here yes. <laughs> eating by themselves? When you eat a, at a bar, um, it's, uh, it's a little more social. You can meet other people, people sitting around you. You can interact with the bartender. There is a, uh, a vibrancy to it that I really enjoy. And Pash has a great, great bar. Um, to sit and eat at and uh, and I just really really enjoy it Um, and so if I had to pick one spot a question that I really enjoy asking people about wherever it is that they're from is if you didn't live in this particular place and you were just back for one night and you could only go to one place to eat where is it that you would go and for me right now I think that place is is Pesh that's cool and And if you ask me again in six months, it may be it may be something different, um, but right now uh, it's Pesh. It's just really, really consistently good. And in the last six months or so, I've taken um, three or four different groups of friends who have been visiting from out of town, and we've gone there, and they've all had like such incredible experiences that they've used the phrase "best meal of my life" multiple wow. times with multiple groups. So that that's that's what I would say would would probably be uh, be the choice. And I do have to correct one thing. I'm not a native of New Orleans. I actually grew up in a little town um, about an hour, it's about an hour and a half drive southwest 
of New Orleans. It's a little town called Chauvin. It's spelled C-H-A-U-V-I-N. Um, it's a little fishing and oil field community, um, about 1,200 people, I guess, roughly. Uh, we had a caution light, uh, uh, which was right <laughs> next to the, which was uh, at the Piggly Wiggly, which was the only supermarket that we had. And the, and the caution light was, you know, f- uh, to help deal with the traffic that came in and out of the Piggly Wiggly. Uh, on a regular basis and um, it's very you know it's a it's one of these South Louisiana communities that that area has been written about a lot in the um, in the in the last few years is you know being one of these places that may not exist in 50 75 or 100 years because of the um, environmental things that have taken place along the along the Gulf Coast so well um, I'm glad so, yeah. you set the record straight on that. I, I had no idea that that's where you grew up. Um, but obviously, you are the Cajun boy for that reason, right? You're you're a native of New, of New Orleans and Louisiana, uh, and and you've you know that's that's been your identity. And I'm curious why you chose the Cajun boy, not just because you grew up there, but why did you pick that early on when you started your writing career? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, I'll give you a little bit of uh, background on the origin of that nickname. When I, I moved to New York in 2002, and I got a job working for um, you know uh, a, a real estate guy there, um, basically as his assistant, showing apartments and whatnot. Um, I had moved to New York to chase the dream of becoming a writer, but you know I was just starting out. I, I didn't really have uh, any significant experience or training. Um, and I did, uh, I did a variety of things during the first few years I was there just to make money to survive. And, um, so like I worked what? For this let me, let me interrupt you, Brett. Like what? What yeah. were your first jobs when you got to the city? Well, okay. So this, this was, this, let me, let me, let me, uh, this was my very first job. And, um, I did it for, I want to say a couple of years. I, I showed apartments for this guy. Um, you know, I was basically an assistant, um, I did all, and I did all, all of the things that that sort of work entails. And he, I was, um, I was pretty good at it. I had some sales background in me at that point in my life. And he kept insisting to me regularly that I need to give up the dream of becoming a writer. Um, and I should consider getting into New York real estate because there was a ton of money to be made there. And so, um, at some point uh, he, in, a, in an effort to sort of cajole me into giving up this dream of becoming a writer, he said that he was basically going to refuse to call me by my name uh, and call me Cajun Boy until <laughs> I came to my senses and, and followed his path uh, into the world of New York real estate. And, you know, I told a few friends of mine that I had at the time about it, and it just, caught a ca- it just sort of caught on. And uh, some of my friends started referring to me as the Cajun boy. Um, and, uh, and then fast forward to, I don't know, I guess it was 2005 or so when I decided to start a personal blog. Um, it was sort of a natural uh, pseudonym to use. And then the other part of that is, is that uh, Hurricane Katrina had, had um, recently around yes. that time had recently ravaged South Louisiana. There were a lot of people who had obviously been displaced by that. And I just, I just felt a strong urge to identify myself with South Louisiana at that time. So that's, that's sort of 
where that nickname came from. Um, and, uh, and it's, and it, and it stuck. I, I, I kind of liked it actually. Uh, there aren't, there weren't too many, you know, Cajun boys running around New York media circles. And so it was a kind of a, a fun nickname and a lot of people liked it and I enjoyed it and, and I went with it. It's a great story. I love the fact that he called you Cajun boy. Cajun boy was his name for you. If, if you were going to reject his great lucrative career <laughs> offer of real estate and become a yeah. writer and then, and it's just so organic. They're like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't want that real estate selling life. Uh, I'm going to be a writer and Cajun boy it is it's a great it's a great origin story I love that story. yeah yeah it, it is a pretty good origin story it really is yeah so when you got to New York and you were thinking about being a writer as so many young people do who at that moment were you trying to be which writer was sort of you know in in Brett Dykes's mind the writer that you wanted to become when you moved to New York man that's a really great question I, I had a lot of people, there were quite a few people I think inspired me um, back during that time and, and still do, people whose writings I go back and read. Um, Nora Ephron and Joan Didion were big inspirations mm -hmm. for me. I, I really loved the careers that, let's just take Nora Ephron for example. She was um, you know, someone who uh, cut her teeth as a journalist, but she also worked as a screenwriter. She wrote novels. Um, she was you know, obviously achieved some fame as a personal essayist, um, had a real diversity to her career and Joan Didion to a, to a, a lot of, in a lot of ways as well. And that sort of career really appealed to me at that time, uh, because it was so diverse. Um, I think sometimes you get a story idea and, you know, to be able to fit it to the medium that it, it best applies that, you know, the place that you can best tell that story. I think Nora did that really, really well. Um, I also probably, if I had to pinpoint one piece of writing or one thing that inspired me and made me want to be a writer more than anything else, it was the book, A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Um, which, awesome book. One of the yeah, great books. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad fantastic. you're familiar with it. Oh, I love um, it. Love it. It's, it was, I, I first read Dunce's, it was probably a little after college, and it, it just spoke to me in ways that nothing had ever previously. And, I, and granted, I had always been a really voracious reader. I, my parents, um, when I was growing up, had the Times-Picayune would get delivered daily, and I was sort of famous for at a very young age taking the newspaper to school with me to read in class like in third fourth grade something like that um and uh my mom always took me to the library always had books around i was always really really into reading but that book resonated with me in in, in ways that um are really really hard for me to put into words and over the years since then i go back and i reread it at least once a year and i especially reread it um, at times when I feel like I need some sort of inspiration, you know, I think we all just sort of, um, uh, getting to a, all of us who work in this profession or, or just in the arts in general, you, you have moments where you just sort of go into a hole creatively and you, you just yeah. can't seem to seem to figure out a way out of it. And for me, uh, going back and reading things that inspire me, uh, have always has always been a ticket out of that place, and Dunces has always been, um, you know, that thing for me. And um, in in not only the writing, but it it was something that it was a piece of writing that I think captured 
the people and the characters and the essence of New Orleans better than anything that had ever been written before, ever did. And, um, and then when you factor in the story, the personal story of John Kennedy Toole yes. himself, which right. um, I, I'm... I'm 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 shocked that more people don't know about it because it it it's arguably you know more interesting than the book itself which is which is saying a lot but this this man who who toiled for years uh, and for and for and for the listeners who are unfamiliar with the backstory I'll I'll just give a a brief summary John Kennedy Toole was a his kid who grew up in New Orleans he went on to be became a um, a teacher he taught English at uh, some of the local schools, both university and high schools. And during this time um, that he was teaching, he wrote this novel. If I remember correct, I think he spent somewhere between like five to seven years working on it. And then he spent a couple of years submitting it to publishers, trying to get it published. And um, he came kind of close I, with uh, the editor was Robert Gottlieb, who went on to become the editor of The New Yorker and is sort of a legend in publishing. And there was some back and forth between the two. I think, if memory serves me correct, Gottlieb was at Simon and Schuster at the time. I think that's and right. There was some, that's my memory. And there were yep. some, uh, there were some, um, there were some edits, some changes that um, Gottlieb suggested that Tool at some point just, I think, drew a line in the sand and said, "No, I, I can't, I can't do that. It's going to strip away too much of what this book is," and. Um, and Gottlieb, you know, basically said, well, you know, best of luck to you. And, and not long after that tool, uh, vanished for lack of a better way to put it and was missing for, um, for a time and, uh, his family, friends, no one seemed to know where he was. And then I want to say it was about six months later, he was found dead in his car on the beach in Biloxi, Mississippi. And he had run a garden hose from the, um, exhaust to the, you know, to the main cab of the car and he'd killed himself. Um, apparently, you know, in despair and despondent that his dream of becoming a, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a writer was, was never going to happen. And then, um, you know, years pass and I believe it was around 19 and this was in 1969 that he died. And if it was either 77 or 79 that his mother, um, was going through some of his things. I believe after his death, a lot of his personal belongings were moved into her house, into her attic, that she ran across the manuscript of a Confederacy Adunces. And then she took it to Walker Percy, who was teaching at Loyola University in New Orleans at the time, basically stormed in his office and said, you know, effectively, my dead son has written a masterpiece. I need you to help me get it published. And, um, uh, the and, rest he agreed, history, he, and, and, he, and he agreed uh, and he, Percy, he, he agreed with that assessment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he read it, the, yeah. the forward to Confederacy Adunces. He, he wrote it and he That's tells right. that story how yeah. he begrudgingly took it home thinking, Oh, I can just read a few sentences of this and it's going to be garbage and I can toss it aside. But he took it home and, and it turned out to be, you know, really something special um, he then brought it to, I believe it was the, the publishing house at Louisiana State University, and they made a very small, uh, limited uh, first run, edition, edition of first runs um, of like a thousand copies. And, you know, it, 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 it just took off from there. And it's now one of the best selling books of all time. And 
Um, so yeah, that was that was that book really, really, really resonated with me. And I think it was reading that book that I thought I would like to do this. I I I, I want to write. I want to tell stories. And you know, here we are. And you know what Walker Percy said uh, about reading those first few sentences. I dare any listener who has not read the book to read those first few sentences of a Confederacy of Dunces, and you are in. You are sucked yeah. in. I mean, I, I, <laughs> Brett, I remember the first time I read it. I think it was right after college for me as well, around twenty. I was twenty-two or twenty-three, and it's so irresistible the voice, and it's so unique, and that. Those first few sentences just hook you, and you, there's no way you'll finish it. Um, there's no way you can't finish it, and uh, it's just it's fantastic. It's and and I love how you told that story. You told it so well. Uh, the backstory of how the book was published, as you said, is is maybe even more remarkable and miraculous than the book itself. Yeah, that's um, there's a documentary. There's a documentary that's just waiting to be made there about that, and and I'm kind of shocked no one has. Maybe it's my calling to do that. Who knows? And I just haven't realized it yet you, you should you should think about it for sure now you said that you go to the book you said something really interesting for writers and I have a similar experience you go to dunces once a year when you're feeling down or I'm assuming maybe even blocked right as, as a writer either with ideas or with writing itself I mean the book for me is Frederick Exley's a fan's notes which was published in the late 60s are you familiar with that book with Exley's I am not I'm not tell me about oh, it oh, oh you've got to you've got to find a copy and read it um, it's a book about fandom Frederick actually in a similar way um, actually uh, to tools so he in the late 60s basically Exley was somebody who was a frustrated would-be uh, writer who was haunted his entire life by fame his father was a famous football player uh, in upstate New York and Exley could never live up to his father's um, success on the gridiron and Exley also went to USC at the time when Frank Gifford was a superstar at a USC so Exley became this fan of the Giants and of Gifford um, sort of living vicariously through Gifford and the fame that he had and so it's a book about America and fame and being a being a failed writer which is what Exley imagined himself to be well and he was uh, and he was in and out of insane asylums several times and he wrote what he called a fictional memoir but really is a memoir uh, and it is funny it's about football and fandom and insanity and persistence in trying to be a writer it's about so many different things I remember Kirk Vonnegut said the book is uh, you know big brave uh, a American and um, and one of a kind and it really is and so I, I press it on young writers all the time and say you know it's hard to even characterize what it's about because it's about so many things and it's also just so damn funny um, and so I like you Brett I go back to Exley um, anytime I'm blocked either as a writer or with ideas and reread it and find new things in it every single time and and it enriches me each time I read it I've probably read it 20 times um, since I first read it um, so for me that's that book and so I wanted to ask you how important is it um, to go somewhere where you you already know the story you already know the writing um, but to sort of unblock yourself or um, you know get those creative juices flowing and firing again um how important is that for a young writer to find a work or maybe more than one to to do that 
I think it's I think it's really important. It's it's funny that you mention it because every now and then I'll have a young writer reach out to me um, and you know just want to pick my brain and we'll meet for coffee or talk on the phone and th- and that's actually one of the pieces of advice that I typically give is to identify the the people that inspire you, the writing that inspires you, um, and go back to it and not just writing but also uh, music is a big thing for me and has been as well. Um, sometimes there's certain musicians, there are certain songs that, uh, if I just go for a walk and, you know, put on some headphones and, and listen to that particular artist or particular songs that'll help me, you know, get into a, in a better place. There's also some movies, um, that occasionally will, will help do that. Um, I, I guess, you know, place is also such a big thing. Like sometimes, um, you know, there's certain environments where it's just virtually impossible to, for me to do anything creatively. And um, conversely, there are places that I've gone, places that I've been in my life that I feel I've felt more creatively alive. And I'll, you know, try to go back to those places. And for me, sometimes just, just traveling in general, I get some of my best thinking done when I'm, um, when I'm, when I'm traveling, especially if I'm traveling alone. And for me these days, I joke about it a lot. I was telling someone recently, but I think I get my best thinking done these days when I'm on a flight that doesn't have Wi-Fi, where I, I don't have the option of um, getting on the internet and, you know, getting sucked into, you know, Twitter or, you know, reading a bunch of things and just going down the various internet rabbit holes that we can all go down at any moment. And to not have anyone be able to reach me uh, via Slack or email or anything like that. It's become this like really sort of funny, unexpected break from the world for a few hours that, you know, your my mind is actually really free and it doesn't have to engage and can wander off in any direction that it wants to. And it's been it's it's been very refreshing to the point where I there have been times where I have felt that I have needed, you know, some sort of uh, some sort of creative space uh, to to really let my imagination run wild. That I've you know gone on Google Flights to like search for uh, really cheap round trips just to get on a plane, <laughs> fly to a place, <laughs> and then turn around and fly back. It's an escape. So, yeah, it, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's a total escape. I want to I want to ask you about your early days as a blogger, Brett, because I'm I'm fascinated by that. That's when I became aware of you through your blog, and uh, you gained notoriety for your fake ad listings on Craigslist in particular, um, where it was I think a, a, a regular. Uh, feature of your blog was the missed connections category where you would put (laughs) fake ads on uh, Craigslist and then post the responses and it was extremely popular. Um, Why did you decide to do that? And, uh, and, and were you surprised that it got so much attention and went viral uh, so often? You know, that's a really good question. I, I, it's been so long since I thought about that era of my life that I, I, not sure where the inspiration actually came from other than I other than I had a little bit of a fascination with Craigslist um, and it, it sort of dated back to that time um, that I, I spoke of earlier when I worked for this real estate guy in New York I would spend a lot of time in the office um, just waiting on the phone to ring sometimes and I would just kind of 
peruse Craigslist. I would spend hours digging around in Craigslist, and I was really, re- it was sort of a new thing then, which you know feels like a hundred years ago right. now. But back then, it was it was just becoming a thing that people were using to find apartments, uh, find lovers, like find jobs, like whatever it was under there were, everything under the sun could could be found there, and. I remember the the very first one that I did that got and I think it I think it might have been the first one that I that I did period and it got some notoriety was I went on Craigslist one day looking for uh, concert tickets if I remember correct it was for an LCD sound system show um, and that was sold out it was playing at a small venue and I go on under the you know tickets tab whatever it's called and there were just a slew of people that were looking for tickets to a Genesis concert at um, Giant Stadium and I was I was just sort of I was sort of uh, I was amused by this but also taken aback by it that so many people uh, like and this is I mean no disrespect to Phil Collins and the rest of the members of Genesis are the you know people that are their fans but like you know giant stadium was a big venue and it was sort of shocking to me that there was such demand for these tickets i mean it was it was really kind of out of control just about every other ad was somebody you know pleading for tickets and and i wrote something that was it was a little crude and vulgar but it it was under the guise of a quote unquote straight guy um that was so desperate for tickets to see genesis that he would perform oral sex on a man for it and i i wrote it in a way and this was sort of the the common strain uh through all of those things that that i think made them um you know go viral was that there was an absurdity to them but there was also a a slight just a twinge of well this could be real and uh, there was a little bit of believability there as well, and there was so there was that one, um, another one that. Well, wait I a second. Let me that, let me interrupt you. A second. You say a little yeah. bit of believability. There was a lot of believability. You're 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 being way too modest here, Brett. That's what was amazing to me when I first noticed these is they are written in such an authentic voice every single time. You did one, and one of my favorites from the perspective of a woman who posted an ad to, quote, the skinny boy on the L train in Manhattan this morning, and and then went on to describe the quintessential hipster, quote, your jeans were tight but sagged just enough to expose the waistband of your knickers. You looked upset about something, often staring into nothingness, perhaps contemplating infinity, Kafka, or both. And the, this, the precision of the language um, and the authenticity of the voice, you know, getting back to Tool, is, is, is what really was so striking and, and why I think it was so believable to so many people. Well, that's, that's the, it's funny. I, I, for, I forgot about that particular one uh, that, that you just mentioned. I, I, it it kind of blew my mind hearing you recite it. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think in, it's getting back to tool. I think they're like, you could probably trace some of the inspiration to those things, uh, to my love of Confederacy Adunces, because when you really, you know, boil, uh, Confederacy Adunces down, what it, what it was more than anything was effective social satire. And, you know, I was, I was using Craigslist for satire basically in a way that, I found amusing and also kind of fascinating 
to me. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a really really interesting thing to play with at that time, and it was also a time before there was um, you know the internet the internet was just sort of diluted with um, with trolls um, and fakery, and people were more willing to believe i think as well yes um and um and so there was one in particular that uh that i wrote that i remember i remember vividly because of the responses and this was probably the one that struck me the most i i posed as a guy uh who worked on wall street he had a lot of money um and his girlfriend had just broke up with him right before christmas and he was distraught and he wanted a girlfriend for the holidays. And so, um, you know, and it basically he laid out an offer, which is basically, look, you come stay with me for I think it was the week between Christmas and New Year's. I'll lavish you. You know, we'll go out to dinner, I'll buy you gifts, blah, 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 um, in exchange for, you know, doing the things that boyfriend and girlfriends do. And I was inundated with responses and uh, like people and people were responding to these things to me. Women were responding to me from their work email addresses, which was also (laughs) sort of shocking to me. I was like, ah, if I was going to respond, just maybe take like a minute and create a fake Yahoo or or Gmail account. But um, but no, it was it was really, really interesting. And and you know, I, I had a lot of fun with it. And, and yeah, it, those things really sort of led to me being quote unquote discovered for lack of a better way to put it. And, um, and you know, and, and I owe as crazy as it sounds, I, I kind of owe my career in a lot of ways to those things because I got discovered via, you know, my personal blog. And that led to me, you know, um, going on and, and getting jobs in media and one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And it's just, it's really, really, really crazy when I stop and think about it. And I, I don't think that I'm not sure if, if, if it's possible for a person to do that sort of thing again anymore. I think there was a window of time in the mid two thousands where a person could just start a blog spot blog or, you know, WordPress or whatever and you know start posting things and and get discovered and i don't know if that i don't know if that's a thing anymore um you know i think i think so much people put so much of their focus and energy into social media and you know building an audience on social media that that um you know building an audience via writing um is not really a thing that many people are doing anymore yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. W- one of the things that I loved about the ad from the woman uh, on the L train who you know uh, noticed this uh, skinny boy um, is the fact that there were so many responses that poured in. Just getting back to that that point about how authentic your your voice was, um, and when you were, you were quoted at the time, Brett, and I love this quote. You said, well, "When you break it down, guys are just really pathetic." Um, and I think that uh, <laughs> that example showed it, and a lot of other examples showed it. But but I love your point that you know if you try that now, the cynicism and the trolling and you know people's guards might be up or certainly are up a lot more than they were twelve years ago. Um, you know when the internet was. A lot younger that it you know you might not be able to pull it off now you mentioned that this got you the next gig or the first real gig and paying gig how did that happen how did you parlay the blog uh, into those first writing jobs 
Well, the the very the very first um, job I got in digital media was after that aforementioned Craigslist ad in which a guy, you know, a Wall Street guy, um, uh, is looking for a girl, a girlfriend during the holidays. Um, there was a site, I be- and I believe it's still in existence. I, I should know this, but um, a sort of uh, site that covered the financial world called Deal Breaker. Um, uh, someone from there reached out to me. John Corney uh, was the editor at the time, and he that ad got a good bit of attention. Uh, he liked it and asked me to write a regular column in the voice of that character. Uh, and I named him Thad. I can't remember if that was in the original ad or not. But it, but the, but the column which ran every Friday for a while was called the Diary of a Fake Goldman Trader, and it was, and it was just, you know, I just sort of took what was in that Craigslist ad and 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 ran with it, and a lot of it was inspired by um, people I actually knew. There were at that time, and I'm, you know, I'm guessing it's still the same, but at that time there were so many, you know, young guys running around New York City that were in their 20s, sort of fresh out of college, who were making just just oodles and oodles of money. And, you know, there were a few that um, that were in my social circle, and I would see the way they'd live, I'd hear the things they'd say, and a lot of that just sort of translated into the things that, <laughs> that I wrote there. And so then Deal Breaker, I guess, you know, the short version was the Deal Breaker gig from there, I got offered a night editor job at Gawker. Yeah, and then I while that. I was at Gawker, um, uh, someone over at Yahoo News um, had sort of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, become a fan of mine and reached out. And Yahoo was um, looking to build their own um, newsroom staffed by people who actually work for, for Yahoo. At that point... Or, at, or prior to that, I believe most of the stuff that they that you'd find on the on the site was syndicated from other outlets, and so yeah, from there I got hired as the national affairs reporter at Yahoo, which was a job I did not feel I was qualified in any way for, but um, I had some good editors and I learned a lot. Um, I covered the Gulf oil spill um, during that time, which was both thrilling and heartbreaking um to see mainly because um you know it it, that was a that was an event that that really devastated you know the place that i come from and um uh luckily things have have turned out all right but at that time there was just a lot of uncertainty as to what was going to happen to the to the gulf south and a lot of people's lively livelihoods you know were potentially destroyed and I remember going to like these town hall meetings um, and seeing grown men that, you know, the type of men that I had grown up with that I knew very well, these, you know, weathered, um, really strong, you know, fishermen types, uh, you know, crying and getting down on their knees, begging uh, Kenneth Feinberg, who was the guy who had been uh, dispatched to, to dole out money. Uh, from BP to to people who was affected by the spill, and um, it was just it was it was a really 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 um, crazy time, and and to think that you know I went from posting fake Craigslist ads to <laughs> um, you know working as a journalist covering that in the span of like something like five years was really really nuts, and then that you know from Yahoo uh, that led uh, later on to me getting 
um, to writing for the New York Times, and that was in the early days of starting Uproxx, and and then you know, God, time has flown by. It feels like, you know, it's it's only been really like thirteen years altogether. Let's say two thousand five to now we're in two thousand eighteen, but it it feels a lot longer than that. Um, but um, but yeah, it 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 I again I go back to those to that personal blog I had and those Craigslist ads that went viral. It it it's really 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 bizarre to look back and and think about it but that's that's it gave me a career and uh you know i'll be eternally thankful for it how were you able to transition from you know making up craigslist ads uh you know writing with a lot of satire a lot of voice a lot of humor into having to cover the Gulf oil spill as a journalist. It's, it's, that's a big leap, in a, as you point out, in a very short period of time, in just five years. I mean, were there moments you said you had great editors, but were there moments where you felt like, what am I doing? You know, I've not, I've not had any experience to prepare myself for this journalistic moment, and now I've got to cover you know, the biggest national story uh, of this moment. How, how were you able to do that, Brett? That's, that's tough. That's not easy. I yeah no I know and the only thing I can say is I've always been pretty good at learning anything that any any type of situation uh, any type of job that I've been in I've been very good at uh, at learning on the fly and I think I think for me in that situation even though I did not have the proper training the proper uh, experience. Um, nothing on the level that most of the colleagues and friends that I made that were covering that spill um, had. Um, I think that uh, going back to something I said earlier, you know, dragging a newspaper to school with me every day since, you know, when I was like in third grade up until that point, having been a voracious consumer of news and journalism and also just sort of been, I, uh, before that I had always been sort of a casual student of journalism, um, you know, whether it be from like, you know, listening to NPR shows or watching the Charlie Rose show and listening to people who um, were journalists and also reading biographies, reading books by people who did, um, you know, the things that I had aspired to do. I think, I think, you know, I was self-taught in a lot of ways. Um, well, I was self-taught and there was, there's no, a lot of ways to it. I was completely self-taught. Um, and just like, you know, so many, there, there's some people that I think just have the ability to do that yeah. and others that don't. And, and I have my, and my, and my dad was that way. And in, in a lot of ways too, my, my dad is someone who, um, though he had, no vocational training he could he later in life um could teach you know taught himself to be able to tear down a, a you know any basically any kind of motor and rebuild it and he just basically learned it by by picking up books on the subject and uh and i've known other people like that and it's sort of remarkable to me and i guess i have that that same trait that same gift because i i i definitely didn't you know i never took a writing or a journalism class in school I had not had really a any sort of serious journalism job prior to that. It was just something that that I was able to pick up on, and maybe you know somewhere deep down was in my DNA. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it, it, it 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 absolutely is. And you know, look, I went to journalism school at Boston University. I had a professor there named Doug Crockett, and his advice for us, you know, budding would be journalists was to just go out there and do it. It was like you know the Nike uh, slogan, "Just do it." That's what he would say. 
And and that really is, you know, there's no big, deep, deep, dark secret about journalism. It's just, it's a practice. And uh, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And if you're someone like you who has an insatiable curiosity, you're reading a lot, you know what journalism you like, as you said, whether it's NPR, Charlie Rose, the biographies you were reading, that was the bedrock foundation for you as a journalist, Brett. You were building that. You didn't even know it, but you you knew what you liked and you knew what worked. And and then, you know, once you have that challenge of having to cover something like the Gulf oil spill, you had those tools at your disposal, disposal probably without even knowing that you had them. No, for sure, definitely. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad you brought up insatiable curiosity because that would that would I was, I that's the one thing I would add um, uh, is that there is a there is a curiosity within me about so many things that I think um, it's something that you can't really teach someone, and it's just something that most of us that have it I think are born with. And I'm just you know I'm I'm always. The person where if I'm out in the world doing things, I'm I want to know if I meet someone new. Generally, the the initial conversation we have will be dominated by me asking questions about them, and uh, and that's just because I want to know everything. I want to know everything about their lives. Like, how did you get? How did you get to this point? How did you meet yeah. your your boyfriend or girlfriend? How did you? You know, what led you to get this job? And I and and so yeah, you're right. I think in a lot of ways, I. I didn't even realize it, but I had spent a good part of my life preparing um, uh, to be led down the road to that to that point. And and you know, I there were obviously a lot of things I had to learn on the fly. Um, and but you know, I did have a bedrock foundation there that that was you know bred generally from you know my own curiosity. Well, I, I know about your curiosity because, um, as you know, you and I met in New Orleans in 2016. We had a coffee, spent a couple hours together just chit-chatting, and you were asking me far more questions than I was asking you. And I, I was struck, Brett, by, by your curiosity, and it, it, and it was a natural one and a real one. And, and any journalist, any great journalist I know, and I'm fortunate to know quite a few of them, they all have that in common. They're all, they're all insatiably curious and and want to know as much as they can find out about people, places, things, and are always asking questions um, and follow-up questions. And um, and you certainly have that, and it, and it has undoubtedly served you well. Um, I want to ask you about Uproxx, um, how, that, how that came about, um, what was the spark of the idea, and it's a huge transition you made. You you talked about it in the essay you wrote for the Sunday Long Read about editing versus writing, which I also want to go into a little bit. But what what was the spark for Uproxx? What 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 was the idea, and uh, and have you felt you've uh, been able to execute it? Well, so I need to go back to I want to say it was two thousand eight or two thousand nine. I went to a for lack of better word, a blogger party that um that uh it was a it was a sports blogger uh get together actually it was in washington dc um i was not a sports blogger at that time but i had there was this there was this um uh sort of just synergy that took place in that era that really really crazy era of the mid-2000s where you know you had a lot of people that were like me that were just starting starting blogs via WordPress and Blogspot or whatnot that, um, for lack of a better word of it, became friends. We all started like following each other, reading each other's work, emailing each other. Um, people like Drew Magary, Magary, Magary. I, can't, I've, I will never get Drew's last name right. <laughs> um, 
the other his cohorts over there kissing Susie Colbert, um, and, and it was those guys that had organized this this get together, and it was in D.C. where they were all based. Um, D.C. for some reason, I've still never been quite able to figure it out. Was like really sort of a a, a mecca for sports bloggers. There were so many so many guys who came from that era uh, area that went on to, you know, they started blogs and they went on to have, uh, and still do have careers in media. So anyway, I go to this, I, I go to this get together. I took the train down to DC and I met, um, these two guys there named Jared, Jared Meyer and Brian Brader and Jared and Brian, um, when they were in college had started a hip hop record label called raucous. Um, and they had some success with it. Uh, they discovered artists like, most staff to Quelly, common a bunch of others um and they had sold it to interscope i want to say about a year before and they were really fascinated with what was going on on the internet and they had um purchased the kissing Susie Culber site they had launched a couple of other sites a, 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 a television site called warming glow there was a film site called film drunk but they were all sort of like one man, um, you know, block sites, which was a thing back in that time. And so then fast forward to 2011 or so, um, the oil spill story was uh, wrapping up. They had plugged the well. Um, my bosses wanted me to move back to New York. And I didn't really want to move back to New York, to be honest with you. I was kind of burnt on New York at that time. And I was just sort of, I was, I was, to be honest with you, a little depressed that covering that golf oil spill story was sort of, um, what took a toll on me, you know, mentally a bit as it did a lot of the people that were covering that story. I, I had journalists that became friends of mine that were covering that story that I knew were drinking more than they had previously. Some started smoking, some were having relationship issues. It, it just, it was, it was sort of a traumatic experience. And I, I, in a way that you wouldn't expect. And, um, and I kind of just wanted to do something fun and light. And so, um, I got in touch with Brian and Jared or they got in touch with me. I don't remember how it happened to be honest with you, but we, um, we got together, um, and we had a conversation and basically, you know, had a discussion about, what we saw the future of media to be. And, and I remember, I don't remember exactly where the genesis of the ideas came from, but I remember the overall arching theme of that conversation was, was that these sort of standalone blog sites were not going to be a thing that were going to be viable in the future and that we needed to consolidate and get as big as we could, as fast as we could. And, and I, you know, agreed to go work for them. And, and we started building, you know, an entertainment and culture site. Um, then entertainment was always going to be the core thing, TV, film, music, etc. And, um, you know, it's been sort of a while. That was in 2011. Um, so it's been, it's been just over seven years. I think I, I started working with them in April or May of 2011. And, you know, it's, it's obviously been a wild ride working through, navigating the you know tumultuous waters of digital media over the last few years and we've had some setbacks um we've had some really you know great times as well um uh but you know we're still surviving and and you know we're we're trudging along and and 
it's it's sort of when I look back on it, like I said, it's been seven years, but it feels like thirty. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I'm very I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. And 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 then yeah, I, I know you know like what I the essay that I wrote when I guest edited the Sunday long read uh, column is this you know was about this um, this conflicting uh, thing that that I think I deal with. Uh, and I've dealt with a lot more lately um, in that I, you know, I, I, I'm a writer at heart. I think that's what I am best at. But I've also found that I'm actually pretty good as a manager, leader, editor. And, you know, I think that generally people like working for me and we've, you know, we've built something cool. Uh, with Uprox and it's a it's a it's an ongoing conflict this urge to to be a writer versus the urge uh, to continue to be a leader and and be the person that you know that that you know oversees a a site that you know 15 to 20 million people every month come to to read and uh, well and you know I I want to I want to interrupt here because I want to yeah. read I want to read from your essay there's a paragraph in your essay which I want to use as a jumping off point to to discuss here and I want to read it to our listeners um, this is uh, a paragraph that Brett wrote for the Sunday long read um, when he was guest editor a few months back he writes look it's not to say that being an editor isn't fulfilling and doesn't come with re- its rewards because it is and it does but it's different And being a writer usually means rarely or, you know, never having to spend any part of your day on conference calls with lawyers, sitting in on sales or branding meetings, or sitting in budgetary meetings where the harsh realities of the sometimes brutal media business get hashed out, or having to become embroiled in a heated squabble over an M-dash. This is something that has happened to me multiple times in recent years. Being a writer means you get to spend the vast majority of your work time focused on telling stories. And for that, every writer should be thankful. So yeah, I miss writing. I love that paragraph because it perfectly uh, captures the drudgery of being an editor, the, the, the sort of pull between editor versus writer. Uh, I felt it myself back in 2008 when I was at the New York Times. I was a player coach for a year during the presidential election between Obama and McCain. And I was constantly frustrated by sitting in meetings and having to do all that managerial stuff. At the same time, I was also writing and I was getting much more pleasure from that. Um, And so it is something when you become an editor, when you give up the byline, right, Brett, you then are sort of you have to take your pleasures elsewhere vicariously, really, through the success of the writers who are your writers, who you are leading and who you are helping make better. Um, And some people are really, really good at it and really enjoy it and never look back. And then there are others like you and me that are constantly yearning to go back to the writing life because the writer's life, as you say, is um, something to be very thankful for because you're only focused on telling stories. So I just wanted to discuss that with you. And and, and, you, and it sounds as if you're even more or have become even closer uh, in, in recent weeks to to really, really missing the writing. But but have you gotten have you gotten a lot of satisfaction uh, from that of, of that vicarious, you know, living through your writer's success and and, you know, enjoying lifting them up and, and helping them become better at their craft? Yes, I, I have. I don't I don't want to I definitely don't want to belittle that at all, because the especially the, the, the writers that 
you know, have come to me that were, you know, pretty raw. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you get to see the progress they made. There's, there's, there's something really, 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 really special um, about that. And, and it, and it's a feeling that I don't know is something that I've ever felt um, as far as like the pride I've gotten from writing anything I've ever written. So it's a totally, they're two totally different things, but, but yeah, I, 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 I marvel at people who can do both. Like, and there aren't that many. David Remnick at the New Yorker seems to be yes, one of the few, sure. uh, and he's the one that immediately springs to mind. He's obviously leading up, you know, one of the um, greatest journalistic institutions of all times. And but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you you know, I'll go online on a Monday morning, and he just dropped twelve thousand words about you know, right. uh, you yes. know whoever it is and it's just like wait how did you do this yeah. how do you have the time to do this because i know for me and maybe you had the same experience like like there's there's not i don't have the ability to have both of those parts of my brain functioning at the same time i'm either i either have to be intensely you know clued into being um the editor the writer uh, excuse me the editor or um manager um and the person overseeing things and, you know, you're helping other people shape ideas. You are um, tinkering with headlines. You're, you know, tinkering with photos. You're consumed with the packaging of things. And and where when you're a writer, you can, you know, it's a it's, it's like a switch. It's like a flip switches. Uh, oh, wait, no, a switch flips. And uh, and you go and you're and you go to another place and you're thinking just most of your mental energy goes entirely to the story. How do, how do I, first of all, identifying a good story and then how to best tell this story. And it, and they're, to me, they're in a lot of ways, although they may seem similar, they're very diametrically opposed to one another. And I, I'm just not able to juggle both of them. Um, what I, what I have been able to do and what I've been doing in recent weeks since I wrote that Sunday long reads essay is setting aside some time, um, to to write and to work on a couple of things that I've been you know cooking on in the back of my mind for a while now um, where um, and it's you know usually um, during the, on the weekends and after hours sometimes I get up early in the morning to work on them though I'm not really a normal person but I I just got to a point where I felt like I had to like if I didn't channel that energy that I was just going to slowly rot away and die. And, uh, you know, and it's not, it's not as much as I would like, it's just, you know, a few hours a week, but at the very least I'm getting the tap into that, that thing that I sort of am craving. And, um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's worked out, but there is a part of me, I'm not going to lie. There is a part of me that uh, occasionally sits in daydreams, especially sometimes after I talk to or, you know, have a conversation with a friend of mine that is, quote, just a writer. And they tell me about the magazine article they're writing on or the new book deal that they got and the, you know, the, the book that they want to write. And um, and there's a there's I find myself occasionally feeling a little bit envious of them. And I don't know if that's ever going to go away while I'm working as a as a while I'm doing work as an editor. And see, and, the que- and then the question is, would you feel envious if you did go back to just a full time writing life? Would you feel envious if one of your friends sat down and said, yeah, I'm an editor. I'm editing this, you know, this great 
online magazine and I'm managing and I'm going to these meetings and uh, dealing with budgets, would you feel envy for that person's life? Yeah, like, I wonder that because, you know, you the know? It, it, it gets to the whole the grass is always yeah, green on the other yeah. side thing. You know, it's right. like, um, is it as glamorous as I'm making it out in my head to be? Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes I need to remind myself of how difficult and hard it is at times yeah. to be just a writer because sometimes the stories don't come and 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 there's also this whole there, there's a whole n other thing that I, that writers today have to deal with um, and that's you know social media and the internet the blowback that people get um, I remember when I was there was a period when I was um, when I was at Yahoo. Um, where I was assigned to do some, I was doing a good bit of, it was during, the, actually, I remember now, it was during the 2008 presidential campaign. And um, or maybe it was just after. Uh, regardless, it was, I, I was called in to do more politics stuff than I typically did. And my email inbox was so, even and in Facebook messages as well, people found my Facebook page and were sending me messages on Facebook. But the, just the venom that I was getting through those mediums. There was one point where I don't think I checked my work email address for like two weeks straight just yeah. because I was so, I just, I just didn't want to have to deal with the, the hate and the venom that, that was there. And, you know, in the years that have passed since then, obviously Twitter has become such a big thing. And, and, you know, if you don't know how to manage it, um, you know, it can really get to you. And I know, and, and it's something that I talk to a lot of friends about that are writers, um, especially in the political realm, like the, the amount of hate that they get directed at them to the point where just venturing into their mentions, you know, is, is an exercise that, that, that really, that takes them some, they have to prepare themselves in order to do it because it's, it can be so taxing on them emotionally and mentally. And it's just like, you know, you got to. I have to remind myself of those things at times too, because it's it, it, it's it's a thing. It's true. And Maggie Haberman, the White House correspondent for the New York Times, is just recently written that she's you know actually sort of transitioning away from Twitter because can you imagine what her mentions look like twenty four seven? You know, it, it's it's um, it's debilitating. It's it's crushing to to look at that and and to have the feedback to every single thing you do be eighty or ninety percent negative because that's what it is. That's the yeah. question. And even just writing for ESPN compared to when I was at the New York Times, you know, when I did the story about the Patriots, Deflategate, and Spygate, I mean, there were thousands of yeah. negative responses. Not not that you're writing for positive responses, but when it's you know when it's a hundred to one negative because it's all the fans that felt you did their team wrong. It's just like, wow, you know, uh, you got to have very, very thick skin and certainly much thicker skin in 2018 than you had to have in 2010 or 2000 or, or in the 90s. No doubt. And 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 to, to get back to something you just said, 100 to 1, even if it's the other way around. Yes. And it's just like That's that right. one person will yep. still, yes. <laughs> still burrow down into your brain. That's right. And it'll mess with you. It'll really mess with you. I, I had an instance like that recently where I had a writer, uh, one of my writers um, did an interview with uh, a pretty a pretty significant director and and he was, he came to me just uh, a little hung up over something one single person had said 
um, critical about his interview. Um, and, I, you know, I looked at some of his mentions and I was like, I was like, man, it's like everyone is like, you know, patting you on the back and, and giving you props for this. It was a really, really great interview. So then you're focused on the one person who, uh, who, you know, had anything negative to say. And unfortunately that's, that's how a lot of people are wired. And, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's a thing, like you said, you have to have a much thicker skin today than I think you ever did at any point in history um, uh, in order to be, you know, someone writing, um, you know, especially in the political realm, because it's it's just, it's really, really tough. What advice would you give to young people listening? We have a lot of young college students looking to become writers or editors, want to get into journalism. What's the advice you would give to those folks who want to be a journalist or a writer? Well, I'll get back to something I said earlier. Identify, identify writers that um, that inspire you. Definitely, and, and read those writers as much as you possibly can. But I think the single most important thing that I could advise people to do um, that's worked for me um, is to follow their instincts. Um, follow your instincts. Uh, don't overthink uh, things too much as far as what it is you want to write about, what it is you want to do. I think when your gut is telling you to do something 99% of the time, um, it's the right way to go. Um, also the other thing I would say is try to figure out where the next big story, where the next big thing is going to come from and put yourself in that place. Uh, don't be, you know, don't be beholden to living in New York or LA or any place else where, you know, conventional wisdom may say, oh, this is where you need to be. Um, I think I think getting out into the world uh, and living in different places is the most valuable experience that a writer can have. And, and newsflash, not every big story comes from places like New York. Big news organizations, uh, magazines, newspapers, whatever they are, they need people in other places that understand those places. And, oh, and, uh, and that and that lesson was driven home in the 2016 election. I mean, there there's news organizations now, magazines that certainly want a lot more reporting and stories from the middle part of the country. Absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, there's um, a premium on those kinds of stories right now. For sure. Get the hell, get the hell out of New York, man. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still, I still have an affinity for New York, but but like like go other places, travel, see the world, and have experiences. Having experiences. Uh, in in meeting different types of people from different walks of life, not only does it enrich your life more, but I think for writers, it's the best possible thing you could ever do is getting the, having those experiences and getting different perspectives and and putting yourself in positions to be experts in things that there might not be many people that have expertise in. So that's 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 the I think the genesis of the advice that I would give. Brett, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time here. Uh, I can't wait to get together either in L.A. or or down in your neck of the woods. Obviously, come to Miami. You let me know. And uh, the drinks and dinner are on me. I will, man. It was great talking to you, Don. Thank you so much, Brett. Really appreciate it. Our guest today, Brett Michael Dykes, the editor of Uproxx. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read podcast. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a kind review on our podcast page at Apple iTunes. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, the best journalism of the previous week drops 
in your inbox. If you haven't yet subscribed, please go to www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. The newsletter is free for now. Our producer today is Julian McKenzie. Julian did a fantastic job. Thank you so much for all the help with today's podcast. We've got a lot of great guests coming up for you, so stay tuned to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta. We'll see you soon.